14 this morning. Ladies, we have a great opportunity for you to serve the Lord. Uh, those of you that have some time during the week, um, Thursday mornings, let me see, I'm going to get, get this out so I make sure I get the details right. Uh, let's see. Thursday mornings at 11 a.m. once a month. We're still picking that Thursday, but it probably will be the second Thursday of the month. The Bridgeport Rescue Mission Ladies Home has invited us to go over and do a Bible study. And this is a great opportunity for us to be able to uh, share the Word of God with some ladies who are uh, down and out and, uh, and are needing uh, the love of God shown to them in a great way and teach them the Bible and give them hope. And so if you are a lady that's available to be involved in this, please see my wife, and that will be uh, on Thursdays. Uh, I believe that starts at 11 a.m. It starts at 11 a.m., right? So probably meet at the church uh, prior to that, maybe an hour prior to that. Uh, so uh, you can see my wife if you're interested in helping that. But that's a ladies' Bible study for the women of the Bridgeport Rescue Mission, and that will, um, that will meet on, uh, uh, once a month on Thursdays. So... Uh, just that information, brother, um, uh, brother Spencer, uh, brother, brother, brother Jared. I'm sorry, I have the wrong Simpson boy. I'm not hearing anything coming out of here. If you can figure that out, that would be great. Otherwise, I'm going to strain my voice pretty hard. Isaiah 14. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be reading from verse 12 down through verse number 16. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Yes, that's a little better. Very good. Thank you. I'll begin in verse 12. We'll read together verses 13, 15, and 16. 13, 15, and 16. I'll read verses 12 and 14 alone. So make sure you join in on 13, 15, and 16. Here we go. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart... I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble? That did shake kingdoms. We're going to uh, look at a sermon by this title this morning. God hates your sin. Does he hate you? God hates your sin. Does he hate you? The answer to that is no. We're going to look at that in great detail this morning and look at a two-week series of sermons on the doctrine of sin, also known as Hammer theology. We'll get into why it's called that in a moment. Let's pray. God, would you help us this morning to be able to understand and, uh, Lord, be challenged by the, the Bible this morning. And, Lord, um, as we look at a topic that isn't desirable as we talk about sin, Lord, even a word that has been uh, pushed out of the public forefront is a word commonly used. Help us to understand it. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be challenged by what we hear today. If there is somebody here who's not accepted Christ as their Savior, may they understand the full ramifications of their sin. And, Lord, may they repent and turn to you and believe and accept your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. You can be seated. As a dad, I know what it is like um, uh, for there to be a disconnect from the vocabulary I am using and what my children are understanding. Sometimes I'll, I'll, uh, we'll have a family meeting where we'll be riding down the road and there will be an area where I think the children need to improve. And Dad will launch into a 15-minute lecture to the kids on how you need to behave, how you need to improve. And I'll gently feel my wife put her hand and kind of yank my shirt and say, almost to say, they get the point, right? Um, maybe she doesn't pull in the shirt, but she'll give me a look. And um, I'll, um, I'll finish, and there will be a silence. And my daughter generally is the first one to speak up and say, Daddy, that word you used, what does that even mean? And it's like, okay, that totally went over your head. Um, um, the whole lecture was missed because my vocabulary was over their head, right? Uh, something I said didn't connect. Went to an educator's convention some years ago while I was a school teacher, and the keynote speaker, he was as dry as dust, and his vocabulary, I think every other word that came out of his mouth had like seven syllables to it. And uh, I looked around about 15 minutes in, and even the teachers were sleeping. And I said, wow, this guy, he's so smart, he's too smart for his own good. And uh, there was a disconnect between what he was saying and what was uh, being heard and understood. Many people today look at the words the Bible uses to talk about our broken state, our corruption, and they feel as though uh, the Bible, uh, uh, the words in the Bible are, are out of date or they are politically indirect, or rather incorrect, so they automatically dismiss them and will not even consider them. I'm talking about words like sin. That word is now labeled politically incorrect. Words like iniquity. When was the last time you used the word iniquity in a conversation outside of church? How about this one? Transgression. Transgression. You have transgressed against me. Uh, that's not a word we throw around very often, is it? Here's another one. This one might be a little more common, but still not used very much. Wickedness. Wickedness. These are words the Bible uses to describe our broken state. Uh, uh, these are, But they're not part of our everyday language. And that's unfortunate because they accurately describe the problems with mankind. They, if we can understand what these words mean and how they work, it will help us better understand how we are broken so that we can begin to understand the picture of how, how we ought to be repaired. Uh, uh, picture sin as the broad word that describes all of the other words generically, and the other words, iniquity, transgression, and wickedness, they're more specific terms that describe a specific type of sin. Now, this is a problem that every human has. If you're breathing air and you're a human being, you have a problem with sin. Every human being has a problem. You say, oh, well, pastor, uh, you don't struggle with sin, do you? Yes, absolutely. I struggle with sin. 
You say, but there's this TV preacher I listen to, and he always dresses perfect, and he speaks real good, and every story he tells, he, uh, he's, he's the hero of every story. Surely he doesn't struggle with sin. And I would say, yes, he especially struggles with sin, the sin of pride. And I would tell you that there is no human being walking the earth that sin has not bitten them, that sin has not hurt them. Sin is everywhere. Sin is a part of us. Uh, as a staff, we went soul winning this week, and we knocked on the door of a man named Buddy. And Buddy came to the door, and he told me he was really, really, really upset with God because God had killed his wife or taken his wife from him at a young, uh, and she was young, and it had been seven years ago, and he just didn't want to have anything to do with God before. And he began to ask me as to why that had happened. And uh, the longer I explained that to him, I began to get into the fact that sin brings death, and death comes at different times for all of us, and, and uh, that death doesn't come to you based on how hard you sin or how often you sin, that death is just the end game of sin. And he looked at me and he said, my wife never committed a single sin. And I said to him, I said, sir, I'm, I'm sure your wife was a very good woman, but I doubt that she made that mark. In fact, the Bible says that no one lives sinless, that we're all sinners. And what can happen, and I think what happened to him, was that he had, he had forgotten the bad about his wife in the seven years and just remembered the good, which is generally what we do when we get separated from something in our past. We, 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 we like to broad brush paint it either good or bad. And uh, he had forgotten the bad and just saw her as good. But sin brings Death and sin is part of us. It's part of who we are. It's built into the fabric of our being. It has been said that sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you far, far, far more than you ever wanted to pay. So uh, let's, uh, let's look at this here real quick and notice that in the Old Testament, the word used for sin, and in the New Testament, the u- word used for sin were two different words and uh, g- generically mean the same thing, but specifically get in uh, to maybe a little bit different meaning. If you're taking notes, the Hebrew word for sin is kata, K-H-A-T-A, K-H-A-T-A, and it just basically means to fall or to miss the standard, to fail rather, to fail or to miss the standard. What is the standard that God set? It's at being perfect. It's at being sinless. How many of you here are willing to admit that you have failed, you have missed the standard at being sinless? Would you put up your hand? And if your hand's not raised, you're lying right now, so you are committing kata. Amen? You are sinning. We are all sinners, every one of us. We have all failed or missed the standard. This is the problem with many of the religions of the world. Because they are works-based faiths. And they think that somehow you can earn your way to heaven by being good. And they're focused on what they've done that's morally good. But they want to forget about what they've done that's morally wrong. Sin. They have failed They have missed the standard. In the New Testament, the word for sin is hamartia, H-A-M-A-R, H-A-M-A-R-T-I-A, H-A-M-A-R-T-I-A, T-I-A. And here's what this word means. This is a very descriptive definition. I must say I like it. It means to engage in wrongdoing by a force or power that is working against us, to engage in wrongdoing by a force or power that is working 
against us. There is a power that is working against us that is getting us to do wrong. Uh, Now, uh, the way that Paul words this, it may be a little difficult to understand, but if you can engage mentally and really give it your all, I think you'll get it while I read it. If not, I'll explain it to you after that. But Paul put it this way in Romans 7, 19 and 20. He said, For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that, uh, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Here Paul is saying, I want to do good, but I end up not doing it. And then I don't want to do bad, but I end up committing sin. And uh, there is something inside of me that is getting me to sin, even though I don't want to sin. How many of you have, have experienced this in your life? Or you're like, man, why do I keep messing up there? How come I keep failing there? I keep struggling in this area and I don't want to, but I keep failing it. And you get down on your knees and you tell the Lord today, I'm not going to struggle in this area. And then you, you catch yourself struggling in that area and you go, how did that happen? How did that happen? Anybody here can relate with that? Today And uh, uh, Paul said that it is because there is this monster called sin that has ravenously devoured us. And we are broken people. That's why the term hamartiology is up there. Hamartia is the word for sin. That is the force. That is that evil that's working against us to swallow us up and to cause us to sin. Now, uh, let me say this. To be human is to be a sinner. And to be a sinner is to be human. Animals are not sinners. Because animals do not have moral choice. We have moral choice. And we choose uh, uh, immorality or sin over morality. That means we are sinners. So to be a human is to be a sinner. To be a sinner is to be a human. So the question then begs to be asked... Since God hates sin so much, does God hate me? Does God hate me? If being a human is being a sinner and God hates sin, that must mean, Pastor, by a logical conclusion that God hates me. And the answer to that is a very firm no. God hates your sin, but God loves you. You say, how is that possible? Well, we're going to look at that and try to understand that today. How God can rescue you from your sin. How He can take that sin away from you. But we first must understand a few things about sin. Let's jump in uh, this morning and try to uh, understand a few thoughts on this topic of the doctrine of sin. We're going to look specifically at, uh, I believe, three, three thoughts. Uh, yes, three thoughts this morning. Number one, notice sin's origin. Sin's origin. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 14 and see where this failing or missing the standard or this evil force got its beginning. Notice letter A, Lucifer's choice. Lucifer's choice. Look back at Isaiah 14 and verse number 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground? which didst weaken the nations. For thou hast said in thine heart, 
I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Lucifer uh, was in heaven. He was one of the archangels in heaven. And he looked around and he said, I want to be above God. And so he began a, a mutiny of sorts. He recruited many of the angels to follow him, one third to be exact. And he began to make a moral conscious choice to choose to rebel against God in, in his leadership and try to overthrow uh, God and for him to become the leader of all of creation. And so Lucifer made a conscious choice to sin. Where did sin originate? It originated with Lucifer. That's why the Bible says that he is the father of all lies. He is the father of all lies. Let her be noticed Lucifer's consequences. Lucifer's consequences. Look at verse 15. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee. And consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms? What are the consequences of Lucifer's choice to rebel against God, to choose immorality over morality, to choose darkness instead of light, to, to choose rebellion instead of a submissive, humble heart of fellowship? What was the consequences? Well, first, he was just flat out thrown out of heaven and thrown down to planet earth. And he was promised hell for all of eternity. One day, God is going to take that old slippery servant who causes the nations to sin, who originated sin and brought it in the earth. He's going to take him and all of his demons and the false prophet and the Antichrist, and he's going to throw them in hell to burn and suffer for all of eternity. I think that deserves a hearty amen. Um. Let me just say that what Lucifer wanted was to ascend on high. What Lucifer will get is the depths of the pits of hell. You see, with sin, we choose that we want that sin to take us a certain destination. Well, what happens with sin is it always lands us in the opposite spot. I'm going to drink this beer because if I drink this beer, I can forget my sorrows. What's the end game of alcoholism? I'm going to uh, I'm going to have this fling with the secretary at work because uh, uh, my wife is not meeting my needs and my secretary she just understands me better. What's the end game of this of this fling? It's pain. It's hurt. It's generally divorce and and it's 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 hard times. It's great despair. You see. You choose sin because you want one thing, and what ends up happening is you end up getting the exact opposite. You say, well, pastor, but this one time I did this and I, I got what I wanted. My friend, you've got to back away from that situation and you have to see what a lifetime of sin will give you. And you have to let time offer you proper perspective. I had one person who was a kleptomaniac or someone who enjoyed stealing. He told me about uh, I was walking to a store with him one time. This was years later. And he told me about how he would how he would steal things from the grocery store and how he had a really clever system of getting away with it. And I said, did you get caught? And he said, I didn't get caught doing that. But eventually it caught up to me. 
And eventually it landed me in prison. You may steal and get away with it once, even twice, even a handful of times, but you live that lifestyle, my friend, you're going to pay. And instead of getting ahead, you get set way back behind. Lucifer wanted to ascend on high, but what Lucifer got and what he has coming to him is the depths of the pit of hell. What Lucifer wanted was the reputation of being the king of the world. One day people will look at him and say, is that the same guy that one day caused the nations to tremble? Look how pathetic he is now. Letter C, notice Lucifer's chance. So Lucifer's thrown out of heaven and he thinks, I am going to get even with God. Turn over to Genesis 3 with me, if you will. We're done in Isaiah. You can let go of that. Genesis chapter 3 and look at with me at verse number 1. And we find Lucifer, he leaves heaven. He's kicked out of heaven. He comes down to earth and he is angry at God. He wants to get back at God. And so he looks around at all of the creation that God has made and he sees that mankind, humanity, is is God's greatest creation. And what he wants is to trip them up and cause them to fail and to fall and to be immoral, just like he is. His attitude is, if I'm getting thrown out of the boat, I'm going to take anything and everything I can with me. So look at verse number one. Satan now has, he has possessed a snake. Snakes talked uh, back before the sin curse. And so we're going to see a conversation between this demon or Satan-possessed serpent and the first woman here, uh, Eve. The Bible says in verse one, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he, and he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Notice the question mark there. Satan loves to put a question mark where God places periods. He loves to call into question that which God has said definitively. Thou shalt not steal. Satan will come along and say, Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet. He loves to call the question what God has definitively said. So he states God's command in the form of a question. Notice the subtlety here of how he trips up Eve. Verse 2, And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. My opinion here is that Adam had drawn the line a little bit further away than God had. Nowhere did God say they weren't allowed to touch the fruit. They just weren't allowed to eat it. But Adam must have walked Eve up to that tree and said, you see that tree? I don't want you to eat it. I don't even want you to touch it. Stay away. And so uh, Satan slips up, uh, slithers up there and says, Yea, hath God said that you shall not eat of every uh, tree of the garden? And she said, we're not only are we not allowed to t- eat that tree, we're not allowed to touch it. Now, notice the, 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 uh, the, uh, the downward slope here, the subtlety of, of Satan. First thing he does is he calls into question. The second thing he does is tell a blatant lie. Look at verse uh, uh, number four. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. Okay, question. Did Eve end up eating the fruit? Yes, yeah, spoiler alert, she ate the fruit. Is, is Eve still alive? Is her body still alive? The Bible tells us that Eve lived to be 910 years old. Now, she lived a long time. If that number scares you, come talk to me after church. I'll explain all that to you later. I mean, I don't have time for that right now. 
But, but, but Eve died. So you know what Satan did? He lied. He said, ah, you can eat that fruit. You're not going to die. So Satan calls, first calls in the question, and then he tells a blatant lie. By the way, he still uses the same old tricks with us today. Look at uh, the verse number 5. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So here, Satan is now mixing a truth with a lie. Did they become as gods? No. Did they know the difference between good and evil? I would say that yes, they did. So Lucifer's chance, he looked around and he saw humanity. He said, this is my chance to get at Adam and Eve and cause God's creation to fall. Letter D, notice Adam's curse. Adam's curse. Romans chapter 5. Can you turn over there with me? We're going to look at four verses in the book of Romans. Romans, I believe, is the uh, sixth book, fifth Yes, sixth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. So as you're flipping through there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. If you get to Corinthians or Galatians, you've gone too far. Romans chapter 5. Look at verse 12. We're going to look at two verses in this chapter. Wherefore, as by one man, that's speaking of Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men. That's all of mankind. Ladies, you don't, you're not off the hook on that. All men, for, all, for that all have sinned. Do you know why you sin? Because Adam and Eve sinned. Now, I'm looking around the room this morning, and we have quite a diverse crowd Racially, I use that term loosely, there's one race, it's the human race, and we're all equal in the sight of God, amen? But I'm looking around the room, and there are people from Central America and South America, and there are people from Asia, there are people from Africa, there are people from the Middle East regions of the country, and you know what? You may not have the same skin tone as me, but we all share the same great-grandpa and grandma. We're relatives. Adam and Eve is our great, 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 going way back, grandpa and grandma. Now, because they sinned, you sin. You say, well, but I'm not as much of a sinner as that person. Oh, stop. You know what you're created from? You're created out of the dirt. Why are you as a piece of dirt calling another piece of dirt a piece of dirt? (laughs) Knock it off. You may not uh, be as immoral as someone else, but boy, in the grand scheme of things, we're all just a bunch of immoral people. We're sinners. Look at verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, speaking of Adam, many were made sinners... So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. We'll get into the second half of that verse a little bit later in the sermon. But the point I'm getting at here is because of Adam's disobedience, 
We're all sinners. And you say, well, I'm not as much of a sinner as someone else. And I, this point is begging to be made here. Why was Adam, why were Adam and Eve thrown out of the garden? Was it because they committed murder? Was it because they committed some deep, ugly sexual sin? Was it because they uh, uh, robbed some bank or took some uh, great amount of money in some heist? No, Adam and Eve's first sin that condemned Jesus Christ to the cross and brought all of the uh, sin curse on the world was the simple sin of disobedience. My friend, all sin carries the same eternal consequence. You say, well, my sin's not as bad as that guy's sin. Well, in the grand scheme of things, your sin sent Jesus to the cross just like theirs did. We all live under this uh, sin curse. Turn back to Romans chapter 3 and look at verse number 10. The Bible says, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. Uh, When someone asks you how you're doing, the proper response grammatically is, I'm doing well. Now, if you say good, I don't care. I don't care. But, uh, and that's fine. Sometimes I say I'm doing good, not to Miss Pam and not to Miss Vara, because they always say well, and if I don't say well, I get picked on. So I make sure to them I say I'm doing well. But everyone else, sometimes I'll say I'm doing good. The truth is, though, that none of us are doing good. Right. First of all, humans can't do good. They can only do well. That's why the grammatical thing. But the idea of good, that would indicate that somehow I'm morally superior. No, no, no. We are all morally inferior. We all fall under this sin curse. Look at verse 23 of Romans 3. For all have sinned, hamartia. And come short of the glory of God. So all of us are sinners. All of us are born under the sin curse. And I can already hear some people uh, crying foul here and saying, But pastor, why should I have to live under the sin curse? I didn't choose to eat the fruit. Adam did. And now I've got to suffer the consequences. And here's what I would tell you to that. If Adam was perfect in every way and he was tripped up, then you would have been too. You would have been too. So let's not throw stones at Adam and Eve, okay? We would have been tripped up just the same way as they were. They were made perfect, given a free will. They violated that free will and chose immorality or sin. And here we are today. Now, let me give you two more quick thoughts here under uh, uh, the origin of sin, because I think this is so important. And for those of you here that are regular uh, church attendees, I haven't covered any new ground. But this uh, this, uh, material here might help open your eyes to why you're struggling with a particular sin. Let me give you a, a, a summary on sin's origin. First notice, sin is born from curiosity. Sin is born from curiosity. Let me read for you Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. The Bible says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired, curiosity to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. And gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. So what happened was she looked at this tree and she was curious. She was curious. She would walk past that tree every day and think to herself, I wonder what it would be like to eat that fruit. I wonder what it would be like to, I wonder what that tastes like. I wonder what would happen if. And her curiosity eventually got the best of her. When I was a teenage boy, uh, I would find myself with, uh, and I'm just, I'm going to tell myself here for a minute, 13, 14, 15 years old, I would find myself picking up a rated R movie box, 
flipping it over and looking on the back and reading why it was rated R. Do you know what I was doing? I was curious about what was in that movie because I wasn't allowed to watch rated R films. I wonder what that would be like. I wonder what's in that. I wonder how that is. And I got caught by my mom one day and boo, I got in big trouble. And so I put that down and stopped doing that because the correction made it where it wasn't worth it. But the curiosity over sin. Proverbs chapter 7, I would encourage you to go back and read it on your own, but I'll just recap it for you. There's a young man, the Bible calls him a simple man, and he's walking down into a bad part of town at twilight, at nighttime, and on that road there is a, a harlot, and the Bible says she was dressed with the attire of a harlot, and I don't believe, by reading this, the story in Proverbs 7, I don't believe the man walked down there because he wanted to give up his morality, because he wanted to give up his purity. I think he walked down that road because he was curious. And some girl caught him, and she said, Oh, I have perfumed my bed. I have, uh, I have made things ready. The man who lives in this house, he has gone on a long journey. He's taken a lot of money with him. Why don't we take our fill of love with us into the bedroom? Why don't we have a good time? And what happened? That man lost his purity because of his curiosity. Because of his curiosity in part. Sin is birthed from curiosity. Why does a teen smoke his first cigarette? Why does a sheltered child wander off deep into sin? Why did the prodigal son leave home and experiment in sin? Why does someone drink a beer for the first time? For many reasons, but a great cause for many, if not all of these situations, is curiosity. Notice, secondly, sin is born from covetousness. From covetousness. Look with me at James chapter 1, verse 15. Let me read it here to you. The Bible says, Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it was finished, bringeth forth death. Every single day, Lucifer would stand up in heaven, and he would lead the choir in heaven, and they would sing praises to God, and he would think to himself, wouldn't it be nice if they were singing to me? He began to covet what he couldn't have. Covetousness isn't wanting something you don't have. Covetousness is wanting something that either you shouldn't have or that you can't get. For me to look at a home that's half a million dollars and want to live there, that's covetous. That's not a reality for where we are financially right now. So for me to go by there and say, oh, I love that house. I want to live there. I am lusting after something I can't have. That is the birthplace of sin in my heart. Most sin, if not all sin, is born out of curiosity, I wonder what it would be like if, or covetousness. I want this, and I can't have it, so I'm going to overextend myself to get it. This is a man who indulges in looking at uh, pictures on his phone that he ought not look at because he's not getting what he wants out of life. This is a a woman who reads a steamy romance novel to have this idea in her mind of what her her romance life could be if. This uh, This is someone who goes and test drive cars on a regular basis and becomes obsessed with a car he'll never own or can't own. He's lusting. He's coveting. And my friend, that is the birthplace of sin. And uh, there is cover-up, and I almost put that up there, but cover-up comes after we've been curious and after we've been covetous. And i got to tell you today, if you're struggling with a particular sin, you need to go to the root of it. Am I indulging because I'm curious? Am I indulging because I'm covetous? And you need to chop those down at the root. Sin's origin. Number two, notice sin's Oppression. 
sin's oppression. Let's jump right in here. Letter A. Notice sin brings distraction. Sin brings distraction. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25, talks about Moses. How that Moses was faced with a choice as a young adult man, whether or not he was going to live uh, as a secular Egyptian man in their sin, or he was going to choose his own people. And the Bible says this, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Don't ever let anybody tell you that sin isn't fun. Because sin is a lot of fun. Sin is a lot of fun. There is an adrenaline rush that comes with stealing something out of a store. This is the God-honest truth. I've never on purpose ever stolen anything out of a store. I've not experienced that adrenaline rush. But I can only imagine what it's like to slip something under your coat and to walk out the door and not get caught. How exhilarating that must feel and be. Fooling around with the opposite gender before you're married? That's fun. But it's sin. Going and getting drunk after work on a Friday night instead of going home and being a responsible dad and husband. That might sound like fun. Boozing it up and watching the game on the screen or the boxing match or whatever's up there. That might be fun. But it's wrong. Here's what I'm getting at. Sin brings distraction. Do you know why a lot of people indulge in sin? Because they don't want to face the reality of what is in their life. That's just the reality of it. You know why people uh, constantly anymore have earbuds in their ears and are listening to music? Because if you were to lock them up in a room and take all their gadgets away and make them sit there in silence and just deal with their own thoughts with who they are, oh, it would drive them nuts. Because they don't like who they are. I'm talking about people that won't look themselves in the eye in the mirror. Because they don't like what they see inside their own eyes, down inside their own soul. Sin brings distraction. Boy, there's a million distractions out there. Most of the music industry and the movie industry and the TV screen. And, and, and listen, I'm even talking about Christians who get in the car and always just turn up the Christian music and don't just ever turn it off and be still and know that He is God and spend time talking to Him. And there are times where you just need silence and you need to walk with your God and you need to confess your sins and you need to get to know Him. But my friend, sin brings great distraction I think about the prodigal son who took his father's inheritance and ran to another country and wasted it on riotous living, the book of Luke tells us. And uh, what was he doing? He was living the party life. He had lots of friends. He had lots of distractions. But at nighttime when he would pillow his head, he would probably think about his brother and his mom and his dad and how he, that he was letting them down. You say, well, why did he keep indulging in sin? Because sin oppresses and he needed the distractions to keep away from the oppression. Someone once said that uh, someone once said that the person who thought uh, they that they could uh, drown uh, their sorrows in drink, they forgot that sorrows know how to swim. That sorrows know how to swim. And my friend, that's true. Your sorrows will surface to the top, and sin brings oppression. I'm thinking about people who are living a very defiant life. Toward God, and they have dyed their hair all kinds of strange colors, and they've got their face looks like they dipped it in a tackle box, right? And uh, they, you know, they tattoo their body head to toe, and they, uh, they're, they're basically just living a life that's just saying to God, God, I hate you. Now, let me just make sure that I throw out a disclaimer: if you have a tattoo, God loves you. 
If you dye your hair an odd color from time to time, it's okay. I'm not judging you, okay? If, uh, if you do some of these things, if you have an earring and more than just right here, uh, look, I'm not judging you, but there are people, we all know them. I'm talking about a specific type. They are doing things with their body that is anti-God because they're almost shaking their fist at God with the way they want to dress and carry themselves. That's the crowd I'm talking about. You know why they're doing that? Because they're trying to flaunt and say, my sin is fun and I'm celebrating my sin. But at the long life of living that way, there is regret, there is pain, there is hurt, there is oppression. Letter B, notice, sin brings depression. Sin brings depression. Everybody turn over to Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 6. I want the church, especially the church, to sit up this morning and listen closely to what I'm about to say. Let me just uh, uh, say this before we get into here. Do you know that depression is not okay with God? It is not okay to live in a state of being depressed. You say, oh, but pastor, I went and saw this psychologist and he told me that I have a medical condition. I've got a chemical imbalance and I can't help it. And I got to say, there may be a rare, rare, rare case where something was thrown off in your head because you uh, something happened in your life. And that is a real issue. But but listen, can we can we just uh, can we just uh, uh, ground this in Christian truth for a minute? Who made your body? I want, want you to talk to me this morning. Who made your body? Who made the chemicals inside of your body? Who made your mind? Who gives you the ability to think? Is God all-powerful? If you are struggling with depression, is God powerful enough to heal you from that? Can we as Christians stop making excuses and pumping ourselves full of drugs to overcome something that God created and God can solve? You say, Pastor, I don't like where you're going with this. Am I, am I wrong in my reasoning so far? The Bible tells us that it is a sin to stay there. Not only in this passage, in story after story. You say, well, Pastor, the word depression is not in the Bible. That is correct. That is a man-made idea. However, there are stories of people that meet uh, the standard of what we would uh, label as depressed. And God gave them victory every single Time And God can give you victory, too. In fact, the Bible tells us we're not to live there. Look at verse 6. Look at this. Be careful for nothing. Do you know what that word careful means? It means anxious. Pastor, I struggle with anxiety. And I'm not here to put you down or make fun of you. Because I know there are people in this room, you have told me in private and in confidence, that you struggle with anxiety. And my heart goes out to you. And if you've met with me one-on-one... Or if you're a lady, one-on-two, my wife and I and you, you know that I, my heart bleeds with you. I will always be there to give you a compassionate ear. But what did the Apostle Peter, uh, rather Paul, tell the church of, of Philippi? He said, be anxious for nothing. You know what he's saying? Stop being anxious. Now, what's the solution? Look here. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto an all-powerful God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Shall keep your hearts and minds. I'm reminded of Hebrews 4.12 that tells us that the Word of God divides asunder the thoughts and intents of the hearts. 
So this verse here tells us that God is capable of taking your anxiety and replacing it with peace that passes all understanding and a peace that comes from God. You say, well, pastor, how do we practically do that? All right, look at verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. You know what this verse means? That your thoughts need to meet every one of these qualifications for you to think it. You say, well, you come and say to me, Pastor, I'm really having a hard time with this, and it's making me anxious, it's making me depressed, it's making me sad, it's hurting my life. And I say, well, you need to stop thinking it. And you look back at me and say, but it's true. Okay, it may be true. Is it lovely? Is it of a good report? You see, it's it's got to cross off. All of those things on that list. And if it doesn't, then you need to do what the Bible says. You need to take that thought and bring it into captivity and turn it over to the Lord. Let him have it. You see, if we're struggling with anxiety, it's because our stinking, or rather our thinking is stinking. Our thinking is stinking. And you've got to make sure you take your thoughts and give those over to the Lord. Look at verse 9. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. Go do them. And the God of peace shall be with you. But I receive in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Uh, there are a couple of sins that Christians and churches just seem to foo-foo and let go by. One of them is anger. We make excuses for our anger and we say, well, it's okay to be angry in certain situations. And I think the other one we kind of turn a blind eye to is uh, anxiety and depression. And the Bible says that those are sins. Do you remember Elijah? Elijah, he, he, he won the great battle there on Mount Carmel. He came down and then uh, he had defeated all the prophets and, and he had won this huge victory for the Lord. He came down off the mountain and Jezebel sends a servant to him and says, you're going to be dead by this time tomorrow. What does he do? He runs. And he runs and he runs and he runs and he runs and he runs. And then he falls below, a, I believe it was a juniper tree, and he says to the Lord, he says, I just want to die. You know what he was? He was depressed. He was empty. And he was depressed. When you get tired and hungry and depressed, little problems become huge problems. And big problems become problems that are not overcomable. And he asked God to kill him. What did God do with Elijah? Please pay attention to this. Because this is the solution. If you're battling with anxiety or depression. He slept and he ate. Okay, let me ask you this. Are you getting enough sleep at night? Pastor, that's simple. This is what Elijah did. God had him sleep and sleep and sleep some more. And then he woke him up and he fed him a balanced diet. Do you know a lot of people that are depressed? They're depressed because their sleeping schedule's way off and they're cramming McDonald's down their throat all the time. You need to eat right and you need to sleep right. Because that's how God made you. And then after he got sleep and he ate, God allowed him to wander around and sulk for a little bit. And eventually God came to him and kicked him in the backside, kicked him in the seat and said, Hey, what are you doing? And he said, I'm the only one in Israel who hasn't bowed a knee to Baal. And God said, No, no, no. There are several hundred others that haven't. And he took him into a mountain or took him into a cave rather. And all of these things happened. And he said, I am found in the still small voice. 
My friend, he said, get off your tail, Elijah, and get back to work. I've got work for you to do. And when he got back to work, the depression and the anxiety fell by the wayside. You're struggling today with those things. I would tell you, check your sleep schedule, check your eating habits, and, uh, and, and then uh, are you walking with the Lord? Are you giving your thoughts to the Lord? You start doing those things, and you'll watch as those anxieties slip away. On a more practical note, get off social media. Because that contributes to a lot of unnecessary anxiety. You're looking at Facebook and, and Instagram and Twitter, and you're seeing these perfect lives that everybody's living, and they're all phony, and you think, oh, I'm, my life's so bad because I'm not like that. I'll tell you something really hilarious. Angela and I, one time, we were, I mean, we were fighting like, this is years ago, we were fighting like cats and dogs, and we were just at each other's throat. And uh, it, was, uh, it was around this time of the year. It was, it was Thanksgiving time. We were really, really just not in a good spot in our marriage. Thank the Lord he's brought us out of that. And, uh, and I love her, and she loves me, and everything's great and great and glorious. Glory, hallelujah. It may not be after I tell the story, but right now things are great. Um, uh, but uh, we were really just at each other's throats that day, and she was getting on me, and I was getting on her. And uh, my mom-in-law was with us, and she looked at us and said, smile. And so we stopped, and we turned, and we smiled real big, and we got our picture taken, and it got put on Facebook. And everyone would have thought, man, they are the happiest couple in the world. Be honest, how many of you have had something similar happen? Or you've had something on social media and it just wasn't even close to the truth. Get off that stuff. Walk with the Lord. If you put your face in His book instead of Facebook, and you did it as much as you put it in Facebook, boy, you'd be the most spiritual person in this church. Walk with the Lord. Sin brings depression. Sin brings depression. Righteousness inflates Sin deflates. And so if you're struggling with sin, get your book, get your eyes in Philippians 4 and study it. Letter C. Sin brings death. Sin brings death. James 1.15, we looked at it a few minutes ago. We'll look at it again. Then when lust hath conceived, it brings forth, bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth Bring it forth death. What is the end result of lust? It's sin. What's the end result of sin? It's death. Lust equals sin. Sin equals death. Death. Therefore, lust equals death. If you're going to look at the wrong things and want the wrong things, it brings death. Unfortunately, since I've become the pastor of White Oak Baptist Church, I've uh, had to uh, uh, conduct several different memorial services or funeral services as the pastor. Uh, in, in a way, I do enjoy those because it gives me a chance to comfort hurting hearts. But the longer I pastor here, the tougher that this is going to get because the more I will love you all and the person laying in the casket I will have deeper and deeper relationships with. Probably the toughest, uh, uh, one of the toughest funerals I've done since I've been here was that of Mary Verone, just a dear, godly, sweet lady I had spent dozens of hours with, and it broke my heart. Do you know why Mary died? Because she's a sinner. And I love Mary, and she was a saintly woman, but she, she was a sinner. Do you know why you're going to die one day? Because you're a sinner. The end result of sin is death. If Adam had not sinned, Adam would have never died. 
If you had not sinned, you would not ever die. Sin brings death. Now, we often think of death in that of someone laying lifeless on the ground. But my friend, death simply in its most base form means separation. And there are a lot of deaths that are not of the body that sin brings. Do you know that sin brings death to relationships? It brings death to finances. It brings death to future dreams. It brings death to a job of being fired or let go. It brings death to future opportunities. And eventually it does bring death to the body. And if you die in your sin, then it will bring death to your eternal soul in a place called hell. Because God punishes those who die connected to their sin in hell. Uh, Number one, we saw sin's origin. Number two, sin's oppression. Number three, notice sin's opponent. Sin's opponent. We began the sermon with a statement and a question. The statement was, God hates your sin. The question was this, does God hate you? God hates your sin, but does God hate you? And the answer is a very loud, resounding, no, He does not hate you. But you need to be separated from your sin. I taught physical science for uh, one year to ninth and 10th graders. And uh, it was the most challenging thing I've probably ever done in my life. Um, Right up there with coaching a girls basketball team. One of those two were probably one of the toughest things I've done in my life. Uh, But um, in that class we did an experiment. We took warm water. We dumped a bunch of salt in there, and we stirred that together, and we made salt water. You know what the water was? It was salty. That was the most profound thing you're going to hear all day. Amen. <laughs> the, the salt and water had combined on a molecular basis, on a molecular level. Then we took that bucket of salt water, and we put it outside, and we let it evaporate the water out. And you know what happened? We were left with just salt again. God wants to take you who have become infused with sin, and he wants to separate the sin from the sinner. That's the name of the game. That's the goal. Sin oppresses. Sin hurts. Sin has become popular. Sin has become celebrated. But God wants to attack your sin. He wants to take it away. He wants to defeat the devil and his goal of of oppressing you and tearing you down and hurting you. And he wants to give you a home in heaven. Letter A, notice Christ's attack on sin. Christ's attack on sin. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, For he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God looked down at all of us and he saw that we were uh, human beings trapped with sin, devoured by sin. Where There was this force upon us that was causing us to sin. To be human was to sin. And God said, I want to separate the two of them. So I'm going to send Jesus to the, to the earth. He's going to go up and be nailed to that cross. And I'm going to take the sin out of every human being. And I'm going to infuse that sin into my son. I'm going to to take it out of the humans. I'm going to put it on my son and he's going to attack sin head on like the enemy. You see, God loves you. He hates your sin. So he became your sin so you could become his righteousness. What a beautiful thing, isn't it? I don't want to celebrate my sin, but I sure do want to jump up and down and celebrate the righteousness of my Jesus. He gave that to me because he attacked my sin. 
letter B, notice Christ's absorption of sin. Christ's absorption of sin. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm almost done here. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look, at, look, look with me at verse number 54. So when the corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The the sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Christ Jesus. A little girl was riding down the road with her dad in his pickup truck one day, and they had their windows down. It was a hot summer day, and a bee came flying into uh, the cabin of the car, and everything they tried, they could not get that bee to fly back out of the cabin of the truck, and the bee was buzzing around the little girl's head, and she was frantically screaming as she was highly allergic to bee stings. And the dad reached over with his hand after trying to swat it away a few times and the bee coming right back. He reached over, and this time instead of swatting away, he grabbed that bee in his hand and he just held it. The little girl continued to scream and scream and scream. In a moment, the dad let go, uh, opened his hand, and the bee flew out. And the girl screamed and screamed and screamed some more. And he said to her, he said, sweetheart, I have absorbed the stinger of the bee. There's nothing for you to be fearful of. My friend, Satan's flying around here. And he's trying to intimidate you and scare you. He's trying to make you think that he can take you to hell. But if Jesus has already grabbed old Satan in his hand, and he took that stinger of Satan on the cross, he absorbed my sin in his body, and he gave to us righteousness we can have through him. And death no longer has its stinger. That old Satan, the Bible calls him a lion, and that lion has been detoothed or defanged. He has no fangs to take you out with. While sin may hurt you, sin cannot take you to hell. Why? Because Christ has absorbed our sin in his body. Let her see, notice, our acquittal from sin. To use another analogy, turn to Galatians 3 with me. To use another analogy this morning. One day, there's going to be court in heaven. There will be no defense attorney. Because the judge has perfect knowledge of the situation. He's completely just. There will be no defense attorney to defend you. Money, no matter how much of it you have, won't matter. Because it won't be able to buy you any attorney. You will stand before God, and your sins will be opened up in a book. Every sin you've ever committed will be in that book. You say, well, are the good things going to be in that book? I don't know, but your sins will be. You will give an account to God for those sins. And that God hates your sin. And if you die with those sins still in your record and on your heart, He's going to condemn you to hell, because the sin was never separated from the sinner. You say, well, pastor, how can I get my case dismissed? How can my crimes be acquitted? Here's how. By faith, you call on that Jesus right there who died for you. 
who's not dead anymore. They buried him. Three days later, he stood up. He beat death. He's in heaven right now. He's looking down at you. And if you'll call out to him in faith, he will acquit your crimes. He will literally take that book in heaven. Literally. He's actually going to do this in heaven where the book is. And there will be a ink pen where he goes over and he blots out every sin in that book. And so when that book would have been open and your sins would have been read, they won't even be readable. He'll take that same pen and he'll write your name in a book called the Lamb's Book of Life. And he'll give to you a home in heaven for all of eternity. He can acquit your crimes. He can separate on an eternal level, your sin from the sinner. Now, to those of you here that are saved, can I tell you that just because you got saved doesn't mean that you stopped sinning, does it? You still sin, don't you? I want you to imagine that you've got this wolf's heart in here. You got saved. There was a heart transplant that took place. The wolf's heart was not removed, but the lamb's heart was put in next to it. That wolf's heart is still there, and it still gets you sometimes, doesn't it? You still sin. You still do wrong. But now you have a new heart to do right. You have to choose which heart is going to control you. Is it going to be the heart where the Holy Spirit dwells, the Lamb's heart, or is it going to be that old sin nature that keeps coming up and biting you? Oh, we are going to fight sin until the day we die. But my friends, one day we'll step on the shores of heaven. We'll be given a new body free of sin for all of eternity. Until then, let's fight the good fight. Let's do our best to set sin to the side and reach for righteousness. And remember that sin still steals, it kills, it destroys. But Jesus gives life and gives it abundantly. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. Have you been acquitted of your sin crimes? Have you done wrong? Yes. Did Jesus die for you? Yes. He's waiting on you to answer that call. If you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, I hope you're listening to me right now with your head bowed and eyes closed. Please give me your attention. My friend, going to heaven is very simple. You must understand that you're a sinner. That was very well explained today. God hates your sin. But He loves you. He loves you so much. John 3.16 says that He sent His only begotten Son to die on the cross for your sins so that you could have everlasting life and not perish. All He asks you to do is by faith call out to Him and receive Him. And if you've never done that, I would just ask you this, what are you waiting for? You're not promised tomorrow. You want to continue down a path of destruction, which is what sin is? Or do you want to be redeemed from those sins? If you're here today and you've not asked Jesus Christ to be your personal Savior, would you just pray this prayer right where you sit? Just pray it with your heart and mean it. All I'm going to do is lead you in a prayer where you call on Jesus to forgive you of your sins and give you a home in heaven. Just say this right where you're at, under your breath, in your heart, Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I know my sin is wrong. I know you died on the cross for me. Will you forgive me of my sin? Will you wash those sins away? Will you give me a home in heaven forever with you? 
I believe in you and you alone as my way to heaven. In Jesus' name. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you prayed that prayer for the first time,